from Kirko Media. So what you gonna do about it? Welcome to Politics. Meet me in the middle. I'm Bill Curtis. Do politicians really affect the economy? Your economy? Not some number you see on the news or the Dow Jones Industrial Average. But as we move through this pandemic, what are the real economic trends and their likely effects on all of us? And as we approach this election, can we expect the results to affect our economy long-term versus whatever the media touts or the politicians promise? Today, we've brought in one of the most lauded economic minds in the world, Daron Asamoglu. He's said to be headed for a Nobel Prize for his work researching the relationship between social and political factors and their economic impacts. He will help us make some sense of all this. So let's introduce our panel. Firstly, our co-host, Pulitzer Prize-winning historian, best-selling author, worldwide lecturer, and the widely quoted human historical and political encyclopedia, Professor Ed Larson. Nice to see you zoomed in, Ed. Thank you so much, and welcome to the show. Thank you, Ed. Also zooming in, Jane Albrecht. She's an international trade attorney who fought for U.S. economic and business interests to high-level government officials all over the world. Hi, Jane. Nice to remotely see you, too. Always good to be here, and Aaron, it's an honor to be here with you. Thanks, Jane. I'm looking forward to the show. And Daron Esamoglu. He's a Turkish-born Armenian-American economist who was taught at MIT since 1993. Although his awards are just too many to list here, he did receive the John Bates Clark Medal, which is awarded to young economists judged to have made the most significant contribution to economic thought and knowledge. Daron is best known for his work on political economies, and he has authored hundreds of papers and books like Why Nations Fail and The Narrow Corridor. Last year, Bloomberg stated that Daron is one of a tiny handful of economists whose work is destined for a Nobel Prize. Daron, we are honored to have you join us today. Thanks, Bill. My pleasure. So let's just dive right in. Define for us what specifically is meant by the economy and what does it entail? Well, the economy is about all of the interactions between human beings that involve production, consumption, trade, and all of the social and economic corollaries of these activities. So when you are going to work or when you are engaged in investments for your business or when you are acquiring education and skills for later use in the labor market, those are all economic activities. So the narrow conception of economy when people talk about whether the economy is in a good state or not is often summarized by these measures, but actually it's undergirded by a much richer tapestry of interactions between humans, between firms and within the entire uh, U.S. society. So taking kind of a, a macroeconomic side, how does the economy and the health of the economy affect each one of us individually? Well, that's uh, actually a pretty deep question because one of the shortcomings of the indices that many journalists focus on is that they tell you something about the average. For instance, they will tell you what's going on to the overall gross domestic product of the American economy. Over the last four or five years, it's been growing very rapidly. But that's really not indicative of the experiences of most people. 
wages, for example, in the U.S. economy have stagnated for most workers. So there is a complex relationship between the aggregate of the economy and what's going on to different groups of people. And it uh, turns on the critical issue of whether a rising tide lifts all boats or not. That's one of the issues that policy determines. And we've had very different experiences over the last two decades or three decades versus uh, before, for example, in the U.S. economy. After saving lives, how can we best proceed to save our economy and, of course, the people who would be most affected by it long term? There are both short-term and long-term aspects. But in the short term, I think uh, you've put it, you put your finger right on it. Saving lives, protecting the public health is a first priority, but we want to do that while minimizing the adverse economic effects. And I think that has two dimensions. How do we uh, minimize the GDP losses? The entire output of the economy uh, going down the drain is not something that anybody wants to see. But then also, how do we protect people who are most vulnerable, uh, the low-wage workers who've lost their jobs, etc.? So if you look at the scorecard of the U.S. policy, you know I think overall there's broad agreement that we've done pretty badly when it comes to uh, health measures, testing, containing the virus, etc. But on the whole, uh, on the protection of the, the workers, we did reasonably well after March with unemployment benefits and other programs that provided much-needed support to people losing their jobs. And poverty, for example, in the U.S. didn't actually decline, despite the fact that we had the, probably the largest drop in output in any given year in the U.S. Uh, recent history. So I think in terms of protecting the most vulnerable people, we have to continue what we started in March 2020, uh, make sure that people who are forced to uh, out of their jobs don't suffer unduly. U.S. government has the fiscal capacity to do that. But we also have to make sure that the economy gets going again. I think better testing ways of uh, contact tracing, which some companies themselves are doing, but still federal government support for this is very limited. But there are also more complex issues, for example, whether we should allow uh, younger individuals who are less susceptible to uh, the virus to go back to work at higher rates than people who are more vulnerable. I think there are some specific policy issues that you know we have to bring expertise, data, and the best state-of-the-art knowledge. But suffice it to say, I think there are a lot of policy issues on which we need better study, better policymaking. Ed Larson, let me ask you a question about our history a little in this country. Have there been other times where we seem to have to create a balancing act between public health and the health of the economy and jobs? Probably the most famous one of the last century was the Spanish flu, which was much more dramatic than anything we have now. We had a, a third of the population back then, and we had four times as many deaths as we've had so far. And it hit all ages. It wasn't concentrated among older people. It hit people in the in the prime of their life. And how to balance that with an ongoing war effort and an election that went on in the middle of it. And the economic effects of the Spanish flu, which our guest probably knows far better than I, were absolutely dramatic, not only in the United States, but worldwide, because it was even a bigger killer in Europe or where his 
His family was originally from Turkey and Armenia. It was devastating in those areas, and it completely flipped the economy, and whole new businesses rose up, and whole other businesses went down. And the federal government is doing more now than it did back in 1918. We're going to be a different economy coming out of this over time. Daron, if you could just lay out for us the circumstances where in the past politicians had to make a decision between the idea of saving American lives and allowing the economy to not crash or allowing the economy to flourish in some fashion. Well, I think uh, the example that Ed zeroed in on is, is the best one, although uh, the lessons are not completely parallel. During the Spanish flu epidemic, the places that clamped down early and produced some sort of curfews to limit the spread of the flu, uh, introduced masks, did very well economically relative to other places because they contained the flu. Now, in the case of uh, the COVID-19, it's a little bit more complex because the, the mortality is lower, as, as Ed said. You know, you can uh, take actions that, you know, prioritize the economy at the expense of, you know, sacrificing some more lives. Some people interpreted what Sweden did, for example, early on in that light, but it looks like the Swedish experiment was not a complete success. It's not a big failure either. I think it's a mixed thing. Describe for us what their strategy so was. So their strategy was is that they didn't have a uh, complete uh, lockdown. They started with small measures that encouraged people to do limited social distancing. Uh, later on, they encouraged mask wearing. But any public health policy can be thought of uh, as falling into one of two buckets. You either go for herd immunity or you wait for the vaccine. By waiting for the vaccine, what I mean is that you actually keep the infections to a low level with continued measures that include social distancing and lockdowns and other limitations on economic and social activity, and you only lift them once an effective vaccine comes. Or going for herd immunity is that you let the virus spread in the population so that a sufficiently high fraction of the population uh, gets immunity, something like 70% given the numbers for COVID-19 may be enough for the virus to sort of rapidly disappear thereafter. So the Swedish case was essentially going for herd immunity, that they're not going to restrict the uh, economic activity. And there are some other developing countries where, without being extremely explicit about it, I think they're going for herd immunity, uh, given that they don't have the fiscal capacity or the ability to withstand long, long, long uh, lockdowns. But pretty much every other rich country uh, is, is waiting for the vaccine. So if you were establishing U.S. policy for the next year or two, what policies would you implement to minimize the impact of this pandemic and facilitate our quickest recovery? You know, after uh, he got the Nobel Prize, a famous economist, Bob Lucas, was asked, what would you do if you were in charge of the Fed? And he said, resign. <laughs> so, so if that's an option, I'll consider that. Let's take a look at what a picture of our recovery post-pandemic might look like, but not really long-term. Let's take a look at the next couple of years after the pandemic is, is dealt with. The economy will naturally recover, and any politician that's, uh, who's in charge of that will take a lot of the credit. So I'll, I'll love to be in charge at that point. Just not this point. Huh? Just, just, just this point. Although I think 
if you look at it from a uh, socially responsible point of view, it is this point where a lot of policies really do matter. Darren, before you go further, sure. you said that the economy will just sort of bounce back, but isn't going to be very uneven? I mean, aren't there going to be a lot of jobs that are permanently lost and the, as we pretty universally recognize, the commercial real estate sector is going to be hit hard. So is it going to bounce back that quickly and that clearly? The, how quickly, that's that's really hard to know. But you're 100% right on unevenness. And that's what I see as part of the longer term. You know, why did the U.S. do so badly in terms of number of cases and number of deaths and, and also, uh, you know, economic fallout from it? I think it's not unrelated to our economic model. We have a very unequal society. In the U.S., it's like the number of the estimates will vary a little bit, but the median estimate is that 40% of the U.S. population is obese. That creates a huge risk as some high fraction of the U.S. population suffers from respiratory problems. Those are not unrelated to the inequality. So, you know, in, in our current age, such chronic conditions are conditions of the poor. Many of the jobs that the poorer Americans used to have are going to be the slower ones to come back. Why? Because they're in the hospitality sector. They're related to fast food restaurants, hotels, and, and, and things like that. And they're, they're going to come back. They're not going to disappear, but they may not come back fully. So there'll be somewhat less travel. There'll be more work from home. Uh, density in some places that supported large service economies is going to decline. But more fundamentally, I think the direction of technological change is fundamentally affected by COVID-19. Uh, it's no surprise that uh, the tech sector has actually boomed uh, during this period. During the pandemic, our dependence on digital technologies has increased. The prestige of the tech companies has increased because we've seen the government not able to do certain things and the tech companies have done a better job. I think uh, leaving things to business as usual will actually have various inequality and perhaps long-run growth consequences. So I certainly did not mean to minimize those when I said the economy will bounce back. But the economy will bounce back in the sense of GDP. Okay, we're going to take a very quick break. And when we come back, I'd like to talk to you about some of the other aspects of this pandemic, such as the multi-trillion dollar stimulus checks we're writing and the national debt. We'll be right back. On medicine, we're still practicing. Join Dr. Stephen Tabak and Bill Curtis for real conversations with the medical professionals who have their finger on the pulse of healthcare in the modern world. Available on all your favorite podcasting platforms. Produced by Kurtco Media. So what you gonna do about it? We're back in Daron. I wanted to talk to you about some of the stimulus packages that we've seen. The concept of stimulus isn't that a highly short-term view of what to do about a pandemic? Well, it is a short-term view, absolutely. I think properly interpreted as stimulus is something you insert into the economy to deal with a short-term problem. But the problem isn't really as short-term as the stimulus was. I think the lack of it, the, the stimulus could make the problem even more long-term. The Great Depression, for instance, which turned out to be hopefully much more severe than what we are experiencing with, uh, with COVID-19, was partly caused by the fact that both monetary and fiscal authorities did not deal with the initial impetus. 
So the stimulus is there in order to sort of lessen the impact both on the people and on the economy at the at the macro level. But the stimulus ends. The stimulus ends and, and it may end too soon. If you ask me, this would be absolutely the wrong time to uh, to remove the stimulus. Uh, you know, U.S. is in a very fortunate position. You know, when you compare it to developing nations, we have the fiscal capacity and the ability to borrow and keep up the support that we give both to the most vulnerable people and to some of the businesses. Now, of course, the stimulus will have to end, but that hopefully happens after the economy starts recovering. And then we can think about what is the best way of dealing with the additional responsibilities on the shoulder of the federal government during periods like World War I and World War II, when the government shouldered in greater responsibilities, some of them did persist. The government did not go back to what it used to do after those transformational events. But it is now getting to the other long-term issue, which is critical, what sort of trust in government, what sort of democratic participation we are looking forward to after the pandemic is gone. I think those are critical questions that we're not really thinking enough about. As well as what does the debt mean to us long term? So if you don't mind me just going to Ed for just a minute, Ed, give us a little bit of a history lesson, the genesis and use of national debt for the United States. Well, America was founded on the idea of Hamilton creating a national debt. The debt was used to construct things and develop various things, such as the frontier policy, building a navy, national roads, harbors. That is how the original debt was used. The debt grew enormously during the Depression and then skyrocketed during World War II. And the fact that that was not let up after World War II, because we adopted programs like the GI Bill and enormous spending after the war, that kept the economy going, even though we built a huge debt. Daron, I wonder if you could help our listeners understand. I've got some friends who just think that the added national debt is just funny money. It's just the government writing checks and printing cash, and they don't realize where the money comes from. So maybe you could describe that a little bit. And also, how does the debt actually affect the quality of our individual lives? Well, look, you know, Bill, uh, all money is funny money. <laughs> That's not the answer I expected. We trust in the U.S. dollar because you believe that other people are going to honor it. And why do you do that? Well, part of the reason, a large part of the reason is because it's backed by the U.S. government, and in particular with the taxation power of the U.S. government. Debt, national debt, is backed by the taxation power of the U.S. government, too. We are not at a level of debt that the U.S. cannot pay it back quite easily. So there are reasons to worry about high levels of debt. This is what economists call crowd out. If the government borrows a lot, it pushes up interest rates. It discourages private investment. It may reduce people's uh, trust in the government's ability to pay back when you get to levels such as the ones in Italy, for example. But the U.S. is nowhere near that. So I think your friends may want to bring down the debt ultimately, but they have nothing to worry about in terms of the U.S. having a run on its debt or the you know U.S. currency being funny money any more than it was any time in the last 200 years. But debt is always a political issue, and it's always been interwoven with our institutions. And I think that's really a critical point that we need to bring you know, what sort of democracy, what sort of government, what sort of responsibilities we are expecting from 
the U.S. government in a post-COVID world. If it's a government that's going to look after corporations and not do enough for the health care of the average Americans or, uh, or the incomes of the average Americans, you know, you would have probably more to worry about that debt. Or if it's a government that we cannot control, if it behaves like Venezuela or even Mexico or Argentina, you would have a lot to worry about. But if it's a government that's going to behave and we're going to make it as citizens behave like the Scandinavian countries or Germany, then uh, it's our debt. We control through our voting decisions what politicians do with the debt and the money that they have. And then it might actually be a little bit more tolerable. So I think it's very much interwoven with the politics of it, which I think is really the big elephant in the room that we're not talking enough about. You know, we have seen U.S. institutions really at their worst during this COVID crisis and before, and we've got to do something about that as well. What do you mean by we've seen them at their worst? The point I think he's stressing, and I would agree completely, is, is the taking on of debt, is it making us stronger or is it making us weaker? During World War II, we could take on an enormous amount of debt because we knew it was making America stronger. You had more faith in the ability to repay. During the Cold War, that was true too. If we're using it for infrastructure, such as the highway system. So the question is, is we're taking on this debt, are we doing it in a way that in the long run is making our country stronger? And that's the question for the way we spend money for the pandemic. Daron, today interest rates are practically zero. Our government has the ability to print money and cause inflation. So over the course of time, what does that debt really mean anyway? I mean, don't we basically legislate our way out of it? Well, again, you know, you could. You know, as a sovereign country, you could even cancel the debt. I don't mean destroying our credit. Right. I, I just mean with interest rates so low, the debt doesn't cost us very much. Right. I was going to say that part of the reason why the sort of the crowd out type of issues are not so important and the markets are so tolerant of debt is because, A, they believe that U.S. government can repay it. And we are in a general low growth period where the interest rates are low. There aren't, people are not rushing to make new investments, which is what low interest rates are, are signaling. So this is actually a particularly good period for the government to use its future fiscal power to borrow and use that money, both for infrastructure, as Ed said, and for dealing with, uh, with the fallout of COVID-19. Inflation is not a problem right now, precisely because when you look at prices, they're not increasing. But, you know, will it be a problem 10 years from now? Again, that's a policy question. That's an institutional question. But right now, there is no danger that there's going to be high inflation, let alone hyperinflation in the United States. The restaurateur who gets a check that helps them keep their employees for an extra two or three months, comparing that effect, which is profound and current, and they can feel it, Comparing that effect to, well, the fact that we, we hear on the news that our federal debt has risen to almost the same as our GDP, does that really matter to us? Or what really matters is helping our small businesses and our citizens have jobs a little while longer? First of all, income is what really matters. There's a finer discussion to be had about, you know, what's the best way of providing that. If you look at some European countries, they went for pure unemployment benefits. 
whereas US, as well as some other European countries, went for propping up existing firms. There's a calculus to be to be had there. Uh, you know, certainly it is true that some part of the hospitality sector is not going to come back. What's the economic impact of these decisions one way or the other? Well, I mean, I think, uh, I think if we are unable to pass an extension of the stimulus, the economic impact would be pretty bad. First of all, there will be an increase in poverty. Uh, some people will suffer much more at this stage of the pandemic, even though the pandemic is less severe than... Uh, they did early on, but it would probably delay the recovery as well because more businesses would go under. There will be more hardships. Some people might actually be forced to go back to work, even when more controlled increase in, in employment might have been a good idea in many states because of the potentially exponential growth of the pandemic. I think the cost of a stimulus in terms of greater debt is not huge given the zero interest rates and uh, and the ability of the U.S. government to actually be able to pay that back. I'd love to talk to you about the stock market versus the economy. The relationship between the Dow Jones or S&P stock average, we've all heard it every day on, on the news, and the actual health of our economy. Can you draw a correlation there, or is there one? During normal times, yes. The uh, stock market is meant to be representative of the corporate sector, and the corporate sector rises and falls together with the economy. But there are important reasons why the stock market isn't the economy, and those have become more relevant for the current period. First, the stock market is about large companies. The U.S. has been for quite a while on a trend where small companies are suffering. Wages are not increasing, but big companies are being very profitable. So that has a lot to explain why the stock market has boomed while, say, for example, wages haven't really increased in the United States. But during the recent period, you know, what we have seen is that the stock market is doing very well, especially the tech sector is doing very well, because the pandemic is a reallocation in favor of the tech sector. We are using digital technologies more than before. The big tech companies are taking over, just like Amazon, just like Google from other companies. And their share price is increasing Lots of mom and pop stores are going under, but they're not in the stock market anyway. Lots of the competitors of Amazon are even on a smaller margin today. They're not in the stock market anymore. So so this is a particular era where the stock market is not a good gauge for how the overall economy is doing. So for this next election where politicians want to point to the stock market, you feel like we should be looking at other indices? We should be looking at always a dashboard of indicators. That would include? Median wages. What's going on at the bottom of the distribution? What are workers making 11 or $12 an hour, typically, those who have a high school degree? You know, what is their labor market doing? It would include small companies as well as large companies. It would include what's going on with uh, labor force participation. Uh, unemployment, for example, was very low before COVID. That was great. But, you know, there were still a lot of discouraged workers who had left the labor market because they thought, you know, given their skills, there were no jobs for them. So when this administration took office a few years ago, the first thing that they did is basically pulling back from years of trying to balance environment and business. And has that mostly affected the stock market? Did that affect the economy? Did that affect our individual jobs? Well, the issue of regulation is a complex one. Certainly, 
some of the EPA regulations do cost money to companies and do cost some jobs. But I don't think that any of the economic success we've experienced over the last three years has anything to do with the, those regulations being lifted. The stock market has boomed partly because some of those lifted regulations helped large companies. There were huge tax cuts for capital, especially that immediately multiplies the stock market value of large corporations. You know, right now in the US, we essentially don't tax capital. That's a great advantage to corporations. So it's not a surprise that the value of those corporations has skyrocketed. And job creation, if you look at it, has been, you know, on a pretty even trend over the last eight years uh, after, the, you know, we hit the bottom, flattened out around 2010, 2012. And then the, uh, the employment level in the U.S. has been increasing. So I don't think dismantling those regulations has really fueled the economy all that much, but it has had fairly large environmental effects. Especially in the time of an election, Duron. I have to ask you if taxes, in fact, are not as direct a correlation between uh, the health of our economy, the jobs, the, the overall pay rate, then what really is the economic impact from the upcoming election? Oh, you know, taxes matter greatly. I mean, I would say get rid of a lot of the additional tax incentives we have given to capital and instead use that revenue to cut payroll taxes and that would be more expansionary and it would help workers and it would have it would help wages at the expense of corporate profits. You don't think they just go pay back national debt? I don't think this is the right time to pay down national debt. You know, that would be in 3 or 4 years time once the economy is really in, in, in a much healthier state. You don't want to start doing that too soon, otherwise you would choke the recovery. Tax policy matters. Environmental policy matters greatly. Uh, I think the direction of technological change matters greatly. So a key question of the Justice Department and, and the administration will be, you know, how do we treat big tech giants? Do we create even more of a permissive era where they're going to be able to take over and grow further? Or are there going to be antitrust action or limits on their ability to dominate markets? What are we going to do about the future of technology? If you look at the defining technologies of the 20th century, the internet, sensors, antibiotics, nanotechnology, the fingerprints of the US government is all over them. The US government was the one who set the agenda they purchased them. They financed the R&D. We've completely given up on that role. We spend less on R&D, but more importantly, the leadership of where that money goes has now shifted to big tech. They set the agenda on what AI is and where AI will go, what AI spending will be done. So again, there are really very consequential decisions we'll have to make. And then most importantly, I think, also the future health of our democracy is something that we'll have to decide. Look. The U.S. has always had a very weird democracy. We have a democratic government that is very proud of its democratic heritage, and it's very large, but on the other hand, it's very constrained in what it does. Federal government is very limited in its ability to fight poverty. Again, we have delegated a lot of powers to states. On the other hand, there are aspects of the federal government that are much, much more unconstrained than in other democracies. You know, we're seeing that in the current election, we are going to have an election where 
There are a lot of debates about voter fraud or legitimacy, etc. But in pretty much everywhere, it is partisan politicians who are overseeing the election because, you know, this country gives a lot of power to governments to have political appointees do a lot of important functions. So there are a lot of decisions that are about the institutional details that go to the heart of how democracy works that we might actually need to consider in the future. We're going to have to put a pin in it right there. And Daron Esamoglu, we want to thank you for being part of this and beg you to come back because you help us understand some of these complex issues in a way that is really appreciated. Thank you, Bill. Thanks, Jane. Thanks, Ed. This was a great pleasure. Daron, how do people follow you? I have a website. I write for Project Syndicate and sometimes for other foreign affairs and foreign policy. And people can always reach out to me via email. Daron Asamoglu, thank you for joining us. Of course, Jane Albrecht, Ed Larson, thank you for coming today. And, uh, well, our producers, Mike Thomas and A.J. Mosley, thank you guys, too. And our sound designed by Michael Kennedy. Music for Politics Meet Me in the Middle is composed and performed by Celeste and Eric Dick. Please send this show to your friends and then Zoom with them and talk about these issues. This is important stuff. And until next week... Be sure to listen to the other side before making up your mind. Catch you next week. From Kirko Media, media for your mind.